We're going to look a little further into his word tonight. We've been uh, doing a study in the book of Proverbs, and we've done so because we want to get better at living this life we've been blessed with. We make bad decisions, mistakes, and the wrong turns oftentimes, and there are consequences we deal with. The book of Proverbs is designed to impart to us greater skills in living life. Wisdom is calling, if only we would be willing to listen. I want to talk to you tonight about just two verses, or three or four or so, in uh, chapter 3 of Proverbs. But before we get there, I want to tell you about this. Quite an interesting article. It was written in the Harvard Business Review. It was uh, in May of 2011, and it was entitled, Money and the Meaning of Life. The author, Bill Taylor, asks in the article, he asks these questions, how is it that brilliant people with more money than they'll ever need allow their hunger for even more money to cause them to lose everything? How much is enough? And why are people willing to risk so much to get more? If money is so alluring, how is it, the author asks, how is it that so many people of great wealth also seem to be so unhappy? Marilyn Monroe had fame and riches. She was a Hollywood legend, as you know. Her worth was estimated to be about $27 million. She was rich, and she was famous, and yet, sadly, she was intensely unhappy. She was married three times, all three end ended in divorce. And she died tragically at the age of 36. The cause of death was uh, an apparent suicide. There was a lady named Casey Johnson, and she was the great-great-granddaughter of the co-founder of the multinational pharmaceutical company. You know of it, Johnson & Johnson. She frequently was in the news, but not for good things. She made the headlines for burglaries and drug addiction and things like that. She died tragically at the age of 30 due to untreated diabetes. She could have survived, but the drugs dissuaded her even from her own health care. In the early 1900s, there was a man named Jesse Livermore. He was incredibly rich. In fact, his worth was estimated to be in the billions of dollars by today's reckoning. Uh, by 1934, however, he had lost most of it. He went bankrupt, and he was suspended as a member of the Chicago Board of Trade. He committed suicide. <sighs> Folks, there's got to be something more to life than stuff. There's got to be something absolutely necessary for living that money, of which these three had plenty, can't buy. Solomon was persuaded there is, and therefore he says this in Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. He said, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding, for her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She's more precious than jewels and nothing you desire. Nothing you desire. Solomon said this, verse 15 of chapter 3. Nothing you desire compares with her, with wisdom. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all those who hold her fast. Yeah, there's something better than material things, something that 
money cannot buy. Earlier, when we introduced our study in Proverbs, I mentioned to you that you, when you think of biblical wisdom, you could equate it with morality. That's the concept. It's not an intellectual uh, capacity we're talking about. It's a capacity to live morally as God reckons morality. A wise person uh, by uh, biblical reckoning is someone who's living rightly according to God's moral standards. Wisdom is not about, you see, being smart. It's about being right. It's about living right with God. And so we know even smart people by this definition can present themselves as being quite unwise. Here are some notable examples of former President Bill Clinton. I think perhaps one of the smartest, surely one of the most articulate presidents we have ever had. And yet... He very unwisely, as you know, entered into a, an inappropriate relationship, a sexual relationship with an intern while in office, while in the White House. That's what he did. You can be plenty smart, but awfully unwise. Gary Hart was a married politician. Perhaps you remember him. He was a lawyer, an author, and a college professor. In 1987, he was the favorite uh, to receive the Democrat presidential nomination, uh, but he was suspected of having an affair with a young, beautiful model. He arrogantly challenged the press when they inquired about this. He said, you can, you can follow me around whenever you want, and you'll see I'm innocent. Well, they took him up on his arrogant offer, and that very day, uh, they found he and she in a very compromising situation. You can be very smart, and awfully immoral and unwise. You could be very smart and awfully wrong about how to live life. Robert McCormick was the CEO of an internet technology company. He was very smart and a very capable CEO, but he lacked wisdom. He went one night to a so-called gentleman's club, and there he rang up a tab of $241,000, which he put on his company credit card. The credit card company sent him a bill. He disputed it. They sued. And he was forced to resign in shame from his company. You can be very, very smart and also lack skill at the same time in living life. This man surely fits that category. Stephen Glass was 25 years old. And already at the age of 25, was an associate editor at the prestigious publication, The New Republic. He was a journalist with a very promising career. But then it all came crashing down in May of 1998 when he was accused uh, by another reporter of fabricating facts in one article he wrote. The New Republic uh, looked into it. They did an investigation in, into Glass's work, and they found uh, that uh, in 27 of his 41 submitted pieces for that magazine, they found out they were total factual fabrications. Glass said he felt extreme pressure to succeed and win approval because he grew up without it from his parents. You could sympathize with this man, and yet your heart aches because as smart and brilliant as he was, he was looking for love and peace and acceptance in all the wrong, in all the wrong places. Folks, these are people I'm not criticizing them. I'm just using them to illustrate Solomon's point. Folks, these are people with plenty of smarts. They didn't lack for IQ and talent, but boy, did they lack wisdom. Did they lack skill in living life. And as a result, they pursued other things with vigor, things other than lady wisdom 
And as a result, they were all proven to be moral failures. What they pursued, don't you see, was not nearly as valuable as wisdom. And that's why Solomon shouts out what he does in the text before us when he says, Her prophet, speaking of wisdom, is better than the prophet of silver and her gain better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire, not fame, not fortune, nothing you desire compares with her. Folks, wisdom, living as God would have us live, leads to far better things, so says Solomon. I think, I hope we agree, far better things than silver or gold. Wisdom is priceless. The wisdom that comes from a personal relationship with the all-wise God is more valuable than anything this world has to offer. But wisdom is not for sale. It cannot be bought and it cannot be sold. Wisdom comes from only one place. It comes from a relationship, a personal relationship with the all-wise God. Folks, in the lives we live, there are two dimensions. One is material and the other is immaterial. This is material. This is material. Material things are things we can touch and see. And because they are so readily, material things, so readily available to our senses, we have a tendency to focus on and to be preoccupied with the material world, sometimes to the neglect of the immaterial world. Immaterial things cannot be apprehended so easily with our senses, but are just as real. I'm talking about spiritual things. Now, a preoccupation with material things which all of us are prone to do, we can call that materialism. And materialism is preoccupation with material things to, to the neglect of immaterial or spiritual things. Now, most of us make the error of choosing materialism because we're fooled into thinking we can derive spiritual benefits from the material world. Things like peace and joy we think we can derive them from the accumulation of stuff and wealth, material things, but it doesn't work. It didn't work for the lineup of people whose situations I shared with you. It doesn't work for us. Folks, we can only receive spiritual benefits from God, who is a spiritual, non-material being. Solomon, in a feverish quest for meaning, tried materialism. In fact, he was consumed with it. He gave himself to an accumulation of stuff. He was set. He was bent on acquiring wealth. He was going to fill the emptiness in his life with material things. Now, he was king of Israel, and as such, he had access to resources the average one of us will never have access to. And so he said this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He said, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Folks, there was nothing... He couldn't acquire. He had almost unlimited capacity to acquire material things, and he did. And what did he find after it all? He found that there are simply some things that money cannot buy. The wealthiest man in the world, Solomon in his day, could not buy peace. No shalom, just stuff. And so he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance 
with its income. I could see why Solomon wrote the Proverbs. He experienced materialism, and it left him impoverished and empty on the inside. And he wants to save us from the same misdirected quest, so he gave us Proverbs 3. Money cannot satisfy, you see, the longing of one's soul for meaning and purpose in life. You cannot accumulate material things and expect to derive from them spiritual blessings like inner peace and contentment. I'm not saying that money and the ability to acquire it, even lots of it, is a bad thing. I'm not saying that at all. I'm only saying that money can't buy peace. It can't buy contentment. I don't care how much you have. It cannot buy meaning in life. John D. Rockefeller was a very wealthy man. At the age of 53, he was the world's only billionaire. It's estimated that his earning capacity in those days was about $1 million per week. But his life was a wreck. It was almost ruined by his insatiable appetite for wealth. He became quite sickly. He lived on crackers and milk. He couldn't sleep at all. Once he was asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit. It's a disease. It's an addiction like all others. Now, why is it that a person can't be satisfied with wealth? The answer is simple. It's because God won't let him. God won't let him. Why not? Because God wants us to find our rest in him. This is a loving God. He will not allow us to find satisfaction in the stuff that cannot ultimately satisfy. He will not let us rest until we find our rest in him. He wants to see us free from the futility of looking for peace and meaning and contentment in all the wrong places. He wants us to seek him and to derive from him peace and contentment and meaning in life. Solomon's compulsive accumulation of material things could not give him peace. His stuff, he had plenty of it. Still, it could not satisfy. In fact, his increasing possessions, interestingly, not only did not increase his enjoyment, it actually increased his anxiety. And so he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. And why not? Why does increased wealth oftentimes bring increased anxiety? It's because the wealthy man knows what he now loves he could tomorrow lose completely. So not only is it not bringing him peace, it's causing him sleepless nights and a truckload of anxiety. William Durant was the founder of General Motors and Chevrolet and a company called Durant Motors. Durant Motors went under after the Great Depression. He, Mr. Durant, filed for bankruptcy in 1936. He had to live out the rest of his life managing a bowling alley in Flint, Michigan. He lost just about everything. What he had, he couldn't hold on to. Ulysses S. Grant was the 18th president of these United States. He became a partner in a financial firm that went bankrupt. He was dying from throat cancer, and he was forced, even in a weakened condition, to write a memoir so as to sell it, so as to pay off 
his debts. You can't hold on to it. You can't take it with you. It ends up having its hold on you. Solomon knew, as did these others, how to make money, but he didn't know. As they didn't know, he didn't know how to live. Neither do many of us. Neither do many before and after Solomon know how to live. Consider this, for instance. In 1928, a team of the world's wealthiest, most financially successful men uh, decided to meet together for a consultation planning meeting at a hotel in Chicago, 1928. Together, these men controlled more wealth than there was in the entire treasury of the United States of America. Many people looked up to them, admired them, aspired to be like them. But this is what happened to them 25 years after that fateful meeting. The president of the largest independent steel company, one of the participants at this meeting in 1928, Charles Schwab, you've heard that name, he had to live on borrowed money the last five years of his life. He died absolutely broke. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cutton, died overseas and absolutely unable to pay his most basic expenses. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, served a term for crimes, served a term in Sing Sing Prison. The member of the president's cabinet who was at that meeting, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison. He, too, was convicted of crime. He was pardoned from prison so that he could go home and die. The greatest traitor on Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, who I mentioned earlier, committed suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Frazier, also committed suicide. Folks, these men learned how to make money, plenty of it, but not a one of them learned how to live life. Not a one of them saw the greater riches of Lady Wisdom. You see, like Solomon, everything they had was visible and material and therefore perishable, therefore unable to meet their non-material spiritual needs like those which emanate from the Holy Spirit, love and joy and peace and goodness and kindness and self-control, things that cannot be purchased with all the money in the world. Well, it's not just these. You and I also have a proneness to pursue material things in a mad, insane quest for satisfaction in life, but real meaning, I hope we've learned it, real meaning in life comes from the non-material spiritual blessings that come from Almighty God. These are blessings that cannot be bought. They must be received as God's gifts. Folks, the fruit of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is joy and love and peace. He didn't only save us from the wrath to come. He didn't only pardon our sins. He also saved us from empty lives characterized by a meaningless quest for perishable stuff that cannot fill the God-shaped void in each of our lives. Perhaps even as we sit here now, some of you are engaged as we're all prone to be in a an irrational pursuit of wealth, fame, popularity, possessions, other material things so as to give your life meaning. Folks, to use the words of Solomon who penned not only Ecclesiastes but also the proverb we've just looked at, it is an exercise in futility. 
vanity of vanities. It's like chasing after wind. It feels substantive and real, a strong wind. But when you try to anchor yourself onto it, poof, it vanishes, just like the material stuff of this life. But the only things that don't perish are spiritual things, and those are the things we so sorely need. Could I just encourage you, as, in closing, as I am encouraging myself as well, let's cease our mad pursuit for wealth and possessions and other material things, the objective being to give our lives meaning. In fact, it's better to stop in our mad pursuit of those things, slow down, and let Almighty God, who's in hot pursuit of us, lay his loving, redemptive arms around us and fill our otherwise empty lives with everything we need. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, to call you the Savior is an understatement. We could list from now until the time of your return all that which you have saved us from. The number one being our own sins and transgressions so that now we do not fear your wrath. We look forward to your return because we'll see you as sons and daughters in the presence of a loving heavenly father. But you've saved us, oh God, not only from the penalty of our transgressions, iniquity, and sin, You've saved us from futility. Better ones than us, not the least of which was Solomon, gave it a best try, the accumulation of stuff. He denied himself, his senses, no pleasure. And at the end, he called it vain and empty and futile and like chasing after the wind. What's good, oh God? It's for us to enjoy a personal relationship with you who have given us life to begin with. Oh God, how could we be at peace if we're not at peace with you who have given us life? So I pray even tonight in the power of your Holy Spirit, not one of us would leave here today misdirected, out of focus, instead determined not to go the way of all these who infamously have made this list of illustrative, unwise people. No, God, we want to walk with you, learn how to live more skillfully, have the kind of wisdom that only come from above, from the one and only all-wise God, in whose name we pray, amen, amen.